0: Putin is losing. He is well and truly on the back foot. It doesn't matter whether he mobilizes more troops. It's not about troop numbers. It's about the technology that means he cannot win this war.
1: Hi, right, guys. Welcome to The State of It. Today we will be discussing Ukraine. This is Season 3, Episode one how are you today dad
0: uh it's saturday morning bank holiday and uh still working out great loving it <laughs> I think this
1: is possibly the earliest podcast we've ever done because of uh, commitments elsewhere but we'll see how it goes if you know moving out of th- your student mode into the free I'm, world i'm moving out of my comfort zone here it's nine o'clock in the morning i feel like a, a whole new woman um so dad what in your opinion is the current situation on the ground in ukraine
0: Well, if we just like review chronologically kind of what's happened, it's obviously uh, Putin invaded. His aspirations uh, and plan for invasion were a swift outcome. uh, And the concentrations of his force were along uh, roads and communication avenues. Um, The request by Xi to delay the attack by two weeks meant that the ground around those roads was thawing. The provision of end laws, uh, and javelins by Britain um, and the West uh, basically meant that those roads had choke points and those weapons, when used on those choke points, were highly effective and the Russians couldn't get round the choke points because the ground was thawing out. And then the use of Turkish TB2 drones meant that they could then go up the the, the stopped columns and destroy the fuel um, bowsers, which meant that the whole attack ground to a halt. And meanwhile, whenever they used... Um, standard battle groups of infantry and tanks. They found themselves completely ablated by N-laws, which destroyed armored personnel, vehicles, and tanks. And the net effect was that first gambit failed. Uh, I would argue that it wasn't such a stupid gambit. If the N-laws hadn't been available in such large numbers, it could well have been very successful. Um, So it failed. Uh, They withdrew from the areas around Kiev, and they refocused on the Donbass. And their casualties were such they had to find another way to advance. So they used their massive advantage and preponderance of artillery, which includes a huge number of shells from the Cold War era. And their plan was literally to pummel grid square by grid square, combine it with thermobarric weapons, so that whenever the Ukrainians took to their bunkers, they were destroyed within it by the overpressures created by those weapons. And bit by bit, they advanced in the Donbass, and the Ukrainians were screaming for long-range precision artillery capability from the West. And finally, um, the HIMARS started to arrive in-country. And the HIMARS are essentially a wheeled version of a multiple uh, rocket launcher system that's tracked. Uh, and they fire a number of munitions. The ones that were provided to the Ukrainians were essentially, they had a range of about 53 miles. They come through your front door, through a window, incredibly precise um, and hard to stop. And they fundamentally changed the balance of power, much as the in-laws did in phase one of the battle. Phase two has been the destruction of the large divisional and the brigade artillery dumps, which have provided the ability to create this mass artillery bombardment systematically every day, every week. And the net effect of that is the artillery bombardment rate dropped to about one tenth. Uh, Obviously, advances started to slow down. to almost a grinding halt, because now, without artillery, the Russian army has to move forward again with infantry and tank battle formations, and they're just as susceptible to end laws and they're not very keen on doing it and you've got to think that the casualty ratio of the of the Russian army is such that it's really combat relatively ineffective, and their morale must be an absolute low. So with, with the high miles, and only a few high mars that have changed the balance. And there are now said to be 16 in country. And those high miles are attacking in you know, HQs from brigade, divisional, maybe even down now to, you know, uh, regimental uh, bridges. If, for example, um, the focus being around the south where the Russians have a, a projection out past the, um, depot river and they're on the western side of it. There's about 20 to 30,000 Russians there. The bridges have been cut off. They're essentially a modern-day Stalingrad waiting to happen. And then, of course, we've seen the process whereby other weapons have appeared, like HARM missiles, which are anti-radiation missiles launched by aircraft, uh, in this case, because they don't have the communication systems to program targets in the air. They've got an older version where they're pre-programmed. What it means is the, the Ukrainian Air Force can start to strike the air defense systems when their radars are turned on and these harm missiles, then track down the transmission of the radar to do with a surface-to-air system and kill the the surface-to-air radar directional system. So they started to open up gaps now in air defense, and you sort of see the Ukrainian Air Force play an increasing role, especially down there in the south. And then the last piece is these attacks on Crimea. And I mean, uh, the, the Ukrainians have basically put it down to partisan attacks. I suspect that the Ukrainians have been provided with the longer range version of the Heimer launch missile, which means that any target within the Russian, within the old Ukrainian borders is now a target. And that means Crimea and the military bases, everything that supports, in effect, the Russian combat situation in Ukraine on the Ukrainian side of the old border is now a target. And Putin is losing. He is well and truly on the back foot. It doesn't matter whether he mobilizes more troops. It's not about troop numbers. It's about the technology that means he cannot win this war. And he is holding on. And at some stage, probably before the winter, I could see that pocket on the western side of Dnipro end up, surrendering. The Ukrainians, meanwhile, are building a bigger army. And their army means something because as they build, they'll receive the western weapons to use them. So it's now inevitable, I think, that the Russians will lose that conventional war and Putin is under enormous pressure. With that pressure, when I say pressure on the battlefield, economically, I don't think he's under any pressure. I think he's a commodity-producing society. And as we pointed out, sanctions upon Russia were like taking a knife to a gunfight because the West is a commodity consumer subject to inflation as commodity prices go up. And as you sell commodity prices, they go up, you make more money. So Putin was always going to win that economic struggle and and people like um the Chinese were always going to buy his resources in a strategic partnership. So I don't buy the economic fragility argument. Um I do for the everyday Russians in terms of availability of goods and substituting things from the West that they're still in the process of. But I don't in terms of the overall war fighting capability of the Russian economy. But on the battlefront, I think the tide has turned and to the point where Putin must be feeling pretty desperate and looking at his options. And so what are his options? Uh, they're, one, fully mobilized. He doesn't want to do that. It, it states that the special military operation has become more like a, a, a war, which for some reason he doesn't want to admit to, because that means failure. Uh, it means that if you move to a war footing, you're essentially at war with NATO. And it's very clear on a conventional basis that's a war he cannot win right now and he must be acutely aware of the failures of his warfighting ability with the Air Force and the Army, and you know, and wonder whether the Navy would suffer the same fate, which it probably would apart from his submarines. The one advantage he has is his hypersonic weapons, uh, and they represent a massive threat to US carriers and forces that would normally project power into the region, although there's enough land bases that that's not a problem. But apart from that, it doesn't look too good for him. So His next option uh, is to wait for Chinese support, which we've talked about. There is a real threat, as we uh, talked about in the previous um, State of It podcast, uh, of Taiwan kicking off imminently. And the moment that happens, then I could see the Russians receiving direct support from the Chinese army. That's something that NATO should really consider in their minds. Um, And the other area, of course, is an in-between solution of the Koreans actually providing soldiers because they are satellite A puppet of the Chinese, and it would create some degree of separation and plausible deniability. And of course, uh, Koreans are denuded of resources, so trading resources for soldiers would make a lot of sense. But again, it comes back to technology on the battlefield, not just troop numbers. And that leaves us with a very dangerous point of the use of a tactical nuclear weapon on Ukraine territory. It is the gap, the real gap in terms of NATO policy Use it on NATO territory. We know what we do. We deliver one back. You go through the escalation cycle, and you hope you deter it. But because Ukraine sits in the grey zone, there is a very real threat that as he becomes more desperate, he tries to shock the Ukrainians with the use of tactical weapons, and that there is not a clear response from the West, and that failure to make a clear response actually leaves us open to such a, a, a um, an attack by Putin. And I think really we should have a long time ago said. You know, Ukraine is not part of NATO, with the one exception that we will include NATO in our nuclear umbrella. So if a nuclear weapon is used on Ukrainian territory, we will treat it like NATO territory. Now, many NATO nations like the Germans and the French will jump up and down. But the truth is, the risk of escalation by having the gray zone is so great, the best way forward is deterrence. So I think you know our politicians have to wake up, and Biden especially, because he's obviously going to be the main leader in that, that unless we create a clear, defined policy to the first use of nuclear weapons on Ukrainian territory, NATO and the West is extremely vulnerable to that escalatory process. And Putin is not going to see himself be toppled by a failure on the battlefield. He would rather use such a, a ploy. And, um, you know, the use of nuclear weapons is all about, in Russia, the statement is, in the preservation of the state, Putin is the state in his own mind. So make no mistake, the one and the same are linked.
1: But If, if if you're saying that Ukraine should be included in the nuclear umbrella of NATO, and you're saying that it's highly likely that Putin will resort to that because he doesn't want to be toppled and because of losses on the conventional battlefield, surely that massively increases the risk of a... Of a war between NATO and Russia, which is precisely the reason why that umbrella has not been, has not been widened to include Ukraine. There must be a very good reason for that Whoa. because the risks are too great. And then once that happens, Whoa. there is a, there is essentially a, a huge war in Europe between two major power blocks. Well, doesn't, doesn't well, the danger outweigh the pros? Cause I, I, I disagree. I, think,
0: anyway. I, I disagree. I think the inevitability of Putin's failure and collapse on the battlefield is now imminent. And so the question is, what does he do? And unless the Chinese have already launched their attack into Taiwan and created a clear kinetic and relationship where they support the Russians, he's left alone and he will fail. And if he's going to fail, what does he do? He finds the weakest spot, and the weakest spot is to use nuclear weapons on Ukrainian territory because NATO won't interfere with that process. And if that happens, and this is really important, we will end up being drawn into it because if one works, try two, try three. So imagine three tactical nuclear weapons being dropped in Ukraine. What stage does NATO say enough is enough? Somewhere it will have to, and that will draw us in anyway. So far better to preempt it and create a deterrence framework for it not to be used than the opposite before it happens. And there's another process, too, is that the lessons that um, Putin gave to Xi was the nuclear threats of creating a nuclear umbrella meant that essentially Ukraine suffered a war. And we didn't challenge it. And we should have challenged it at that moment and said, for the purposes of this process, if you threaten us with nuclear weapons, it's part of NATO. We could have even stopped the whole thing then and there. Because my fear is the Chinese do exactly the same over Taiwan. They see weakness in this area, gray area, and they choose basically to try and enact an umbrella process as a secondary strategic response to their first strike of killing warships and American bases and Japanese bases across the Pacific in what I call the Pearl Harbor II scenario. So I think we really have a weakness in the West, which is the use of small nuclear weapons in gray spaces. And we need very defined responses to be out there for aggressors. So they understand there is no doubt as to how we will react, which is how the Cold War stayed cold, clear deterrent strategies.
1: If you look at the political situation surrounding Ukraine, you seem quite certain that Putin has an iron grip on his government. Do you not see any, any problems coming from inside Russia? Do you see him maintaining that grip despite his failures in the conventional war?
0: So in Breaking the Code of History, there's a chapter on polarization. And there is a case study about Germany and how the Nazis polarized Germany And I ask a simple question. Where did all the good Germans go? Because there were lots of good Germans. You know, they were Christian, God-fearing. And how did they end up being a Nazified country? And the first thing that happens is the good ones see the writing on the wall, they can't resist it, and they leave. Um, Some of them stay, and they turn out to be targets and end up in prison or to disappear. And because of one of the theories. That you'll see we've talked about it's a theory of human collective dynamics. Um, it's available on the website. Essentially, I describe humanity as a system whereby you have 15% of people who are highly productive and constructive, you have about 20% of people who are destructive, and 2% of the 20 are highly malevolent. Hitler would have been one, Stalin would have been another, and those people actually lead nations to war. They then enact the rest of the 20% to work with them. They remove the 15% who are constructive, and the people in the middle, literally just like wheat in the wind, start to follow the other energy. And Putin has created the same construct. There are no dissenters, and if there are, they're very deeply buried and unable to act. So I don't see that as a solution in this particular current paradigm. Nor should we in the West. Relying on hope is a very bad strategy.
1: What is your opinion on Boris Johnson's recent visit to Kiev? Do you think it shows that continued solidarity that the UK has with Ukraine? Do you think it shows a Western solidarity or is that still, you know, is the UK leading the charge there?
0: I think it shows that Boris is out for Boris. Um, I'm afraid I would have to classify it as one of the greatest disappointments in uh, political leadership in British history for decades. He entered with a mandate that was so powerful, one that he could have executed Brexit and radically advanced Britain in his tenure. And his incompetence and self-centeredness and narcissism and this creation of a a Boris cult uh, has absolutely let the side down in the most incredible way. He Um, The only reason that he stepped up for Ukraine was he was in political difficulties and he understood that Ukraine's survival was his own survival. And ultimately, uh, as I talk about in the cycle of Five Stages of Empire, many leaders do things for their own reasons which represent unconsciously how the system predictably should respond to maximize its outcomes. So I don't think Boris's um, behavior was altruistic. It was Boris's self-centeredness. I think his return there is much more about his legacy, because it was one of the things. That history, he, they're recording for two things. One is for Brexit and releasing Britain from the, the trap of the EU. And if anyone is in doubt about the future of the EU, just look at its behavior. It has really no real growth. Stagflation has hit it. Now, as negative real growth. It will fracture. And Brexit will be viewed as leaving the Titanic before the ship sunk in the first lifeboat to set up and go to the Carpathia. Um, and, and I say that because Boris will historically be viewed as the man that got us out. And he'll also be viewed as the man that saved Ukraine, which actually he will and did. His motivations another issue. And his visit is about reinforcing that process. Interestingly enough, I do think that he will fight tooth and nail for that legacy. So you can assume that Boris is Key strategy will on be ongoing support for Ukraine, wherever or whatever he does. But for it's,
1: himself, is personally it, motivated.
0: It, it's much more about himself than it is for Ukraine. Everything
1: is about himself. For but the end result will still be a fight so the, for the, Ukraine.
0: The support for Ukraine. And I think actually Truss, who you know, uh, um, from the moment Tugendhat dropped out, we made our favourites, will actually be quite Thatcher-esque. And she is probably now the strong woman of the West. And that she will be more resolute than Biden or any other European leader in facing off against Putin and the Chinese. And I think, strange enough, she starts from a position that's very different from previous politicians since Blair, which is they all start in lots of hope, lots of popularity, and they just go downhill in the polls. I think she starts in the other corner. There is no hope of popularity. She's a strange fish, much as Thatcher was. The style of communication was really weird a few months ago and is less weird now. But her policies are entirely appropriate for where we are in an expansive stage of the fifth stage of empire. They're highly Thatcher-esque, and she's also adaptive, and she knows that government needs a radical washout in what I call the second phase of the civil war, which is never complete, which is a lateralization of government. So I think actually she's going to start off unpopular, and she's going to become more popular, and the judgment will simply be not her political charisma, which we've been following for years at, at some level and much more her delivery of policies. And I think she's going to surprise us. And um, if Sunak had got in, you might as well have kissed goodbye to the West. But I think there's something quite interesting about her arrival. And I think she's now probably the most formidable Western leader in terms of her intent to to fight autocracy and the issues around it.
1: Drawing the conversation back to the specific military situation in Ukraine, what do you see the future of the Donbass being? Do you believe that Russia will be able to hold it, or do you think the Ukrainians will push them back?
0: Look, I think the Donbass is very heavily fortified on both sides. So I think that the Russians will yield ground everywhere else before the Donbass. And if I was the Ukrainians, I wouldn't be, you know, frankly attacking heavily fortified positions that have been there since 2014. I would be flanking the movements and and basically going round everything. So I think ultimately it may well be the last piece of ground that's recovered, as the Ukrainians, you know, really start to push back. But ultimately it will fall, and ultimately Ukraine will gain its borders as long as you know World War Three doesn't intercede. And, uh, but I think I think um, unless something radical happens and the Chinese arrive, essentially the Ukrainians are set to win that war.
1: What do you think of the fighting capability of the of the Russian military compared to the Ukrainian military right now? on a a versus basis you know it's,
0: it's completely night and day and and i think what's interesting is after the crimea was taken from ukraine they reformed their forces and the west helped them and they shifted you know, what is a communist legacy of hierarchical leadership on the battlefield, as in one person telling the next person and it going down the pyramid into a much more kind of mission centred command where corporals, sergeants had very, very high levels of initiative and authority to execute. And that means that the whole force is far more multiplied. There's a very interesting sort of observation about the Germans in the Second World War, and that is they started in a very kind of mission led leadership where leadership was devolved to the lowest levels. And towards the end of the war, when Hitler felt that he was losing, he just took more and more control, and people were disempowered further and further down the chain, and the combat capability decreased. In the West, they started the other way around, and they migrated to exactly how the Germans started, and their armies were more successful. So the adoption of that mission-led construct for the Ukrainians was a big move, and the Western training. And the Russians are still stuck in the opposite. Now, The more lethality you give to those individuals and the more command flexibility you give them and end laws and, you know, anti aircraft shoulder fired manpads, they're all about the power of the infantryman. You multiply that effect enormously. So the motivation of the Ukrainians is just phenomenal. Their toughness, their durability, they're tough people. And, you know, they, they are, they're developing an extremely combat capable system that actually is the frontal shield of NATO now. A battle-hardened experience like this is difficult to describe when you look at the transformation of a society and its military. So in the process of fighting the Russians, the West is gaining you know, a force, which in itself is a highly capable um, organization that will play a part in the bigger picture, I suspect. And as for the Russians, they've been found wanting. They basically are an army. So Russia in its, the historical cycle of empires is in legacy. So after the Cold War, it never recovered, really. It's an illusion to think it recovered demographically because its demographics have decreased. So its population has decreased. Therefore, the forces of social change have waned. Its recovery is purely about the commodity cycle. So it's become richer, and the energy of Putin has tried to substitute the lack of energy of the system he leads. But you can't compensate for that. And the army represents a fractal of that, low motivation, low adaptability Low energy, all those things in his army are represented by the people of Russia, with a few exceptions. And that's not enough to make a difference in this war. So it's very much a hallmark of the cycle of a system. And legacy is a terrible place to be fighting a war from with negative demographics. And that's one of uh, Putin's greatest problems. A quick war is the only way you can win that war. Uh, Anything that's attritional kills you with time, whereas Ukrainians are on the other side of that curve.
1: With the use of tactical nukes, do you think the situation on the ground could change?
0: Oh my goodness, you know, it's difficult to imagine how scary those weapons really are. Really, really scary. So and I so I'd say that as a strong yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, it is a game changer. You know, if you could be left to use tactical weapons without any limitation, you would destroy the Ukrainian army and its resistance.
1: Well, I think that's about it from us. Thanks so much for joining us, Dad, and giving us your perspectives on what's happening in Ukraine and the political situation surrounding it. Do you find that all all right? Well, I mean, it's quite
0: traumatic to, <laughs> six months later, be witnessing a war in Europe. but um, And it has um real double jeopardy as the Ukrainians start to become more successful. And um, we in the West, our leadership and NATO leaders need to recognize this point of danger and counter it and be proactive rather than just passive. Um, so I think it's a really important moment. And I hope that Truss's arrival will also be part of that response with a, a new energy infused in the system.
1: Well there we go. I think you've given us some problems and some solutions there. So thank you so much, Dad. Have a good day. And you, Winnie. Catch you on the, uh, on number three of series three. So just before you guys go, we'd love to talk about the Global Forecaster seminar taking place at the Lythe Hill Hotel, Hazelmere, Surrey, on the 3rd to the 4th of October. You can come in person. You can join online. It consists of six one-hour sessions per day, 40 minutes of speaking per session with questions to follow. And you can book it on David's website if you'd like to attend. Thanks for listening and see you guys next time.